Are pension funds failing Britain? Global equities are the default allocation for most UK pension funds. Should they reconsider their home market? Should the government intervene? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investment at Joe Hambro Capital Management and Regnan. My guest today is Kerin Rosenberg, founder and leader of Cardano Investment UK, probably the foremost investment advisor to the defined pension funds in the UK. I should disclose at this point that Karen and I have a professional relationship outside of Joe Hambro because Cardano act as the fiduciary manager for the Trafalgar House Pension Trust, where I'm a trustee director and a member of the investment committee. So I see Karen quite often over the, uh, you know, the boardroom table. Welcome, Karen. Morning, Andrew. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I just wanted to say that we, we have known each other for many years. And, and as you know, um, you've been very influential on me and my thought process, particularly educating me around various issues around sustainability. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'm honoured and look forward to the conversation. Yeah, we've had some really interesting conversations over the over the years. We're just going to reprise that today <laughs> for the benefit of our, our lis- listeners. Um, yeah, before we start, um, I mentioned fiduciary manager, mm. Cardano, maybe not to uh, all of our listeners a household name, but it just tell us a little bit about what you and Cardano do uh, in the context of the UK pensions industry. Sure. So Cardano is a pension specialist, an Anglo-Dutch pension specialist. Um, we've been in business for just over 20 years. Uh, we do we provide advice to pension funds around covenant and and other pensions financial matters. We are also on the investment side. We provide fiduciary management to UK pension funds, and we also own now pensions, who are one of the DC master trusts in the UK. Um, so we, we we're operating really in the in the Netherlands and the UK. I should I should add that the views I will say today are, are more personal views, sort of um, developed over the last thirty years or so as a pensions expert in the UK. And I think for anybody looking into the pension industry from outside, I think they they need to appreciate the sheer complexity mm. of the rules, not just the actuarial calculations, but the the regulations, primary acts of Parliament, the Pensions Act, and all these things that frame what pension funds can and importantly can't do, which is going yeah. to be important in the context of today's conversation. Yes, and I think it's a it's a, a pretty complicated ecosystem with lots of players involved. There are trustees, there are sponsors, there are regulators, several of them. Then there are lots and lots of helpers and advisors who sort of get involved. So in your typical pensions boardroom today, I mean, it's a, it's a full room with lots of people and lots of advisors and, and, as you say, a very, very complicated regulatory environment. Now, part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show and to talk about you know, UK pension funds, which is probably not everybody's idea of a sexy to- topic of conversation for a podcast, but the UK government's got very interested in pension funds and their role in the broader UK economy and, and funding mm. it. And I'd like to start there. You know, what, why have UK pension funds you know, withdrawn from UK equities? A point. You know, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, raised in the, mm. the Mansion House address. Tony Blair Institute have been focusing on it as well. Yes, I think the – well, let's just start by mapping out a little bit about the industry because, of course, pension funds in the UK are not a monolithic structure. Um, I, I think it's worth just thinking of – there's four groups that are important to, to be aware of. Um, what, one that we shouldn't forget is, of course, the, the, the huge unfunded 
pensions. I mean, there are public pensions and the state pension, which is unfunded. So, so that's something we might come back to later on. But, but they're not doing anything with their assets because they don't have any assets. Um, within the funded sector, there are really three groups. So there is defined contribution or, or DC. Uh, so these are the growing pension funds. I mean, most people under the age of 50 in the UK, if they have a pension, it will be a DC pension. So they are very heavily invested in equities, um, typically 70 to 90 percent in equities. And that's a growing sector. We should make sure we, we come back to that as well. Within the defined benefit world, which is the DB schemes, um, that can be divided between pub, uh, corporates, um, sort of the private sector, and the local authorities. The local authorities have several hundred billion and they are very much invested in equities and, 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 and other sort of high-returning assets. It's really the corporate or the private sector DB pension funds that have changed their strategies very significantly over the last few decades. So this is the group who are getting a lot of attention from the government. There's probably about £1.4 trillion still left in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the private uh, DB sector. And they are very much de-risking. So I think in order to, to – let's, let's start with them if we can, but we, we should make sure we do cover the other bits because they are pretty significant. I think there was an important number, £1.4 trillion, which is trillion. why the government Indeed. is very interested. It's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's a lot lower than it was. I mean it was £2 trillion a few years ago and, and following the rise in guilt yields, um, the value of those, those DB pensions has, has come down a lot. So it's about one4 um, okay, so I think a, a little bit of background is important. Those DB pension funds, going back, I mean, when I started my career, I used to have, uh, you know, 80, 90% in equities. They, they tried to target a high rate of return. Um, but at that time, they were accumulating. They were getting bigger. There was money coming into those pension funds. Um, over the last several decades, a lot has happened in the industry. There's been a lot of regulatory change, legislative change. There's been a sort of an aging of the population, changing practices amongst employers and the sort of the, the idea that you join a company and spend your entire career in one place and retire after, you know, 30, 40 years of loyal service is no longer the case. So changing demographic, all of this has combined to, to lead to these pension funds being shut so today, very, very few private sector DB funds are open, meaning that there is a population of members. They're all get each year, they're one year older, um, and and they're not accumulating anymore. They're decumulating. They're, they're paying people out. So naturally, the focus becomes more about how do I make sure I can pay those pensions with some confidence added to the fact there's been a lot of regulatory change on top of that, and these pension funds are all in the process of de-risking, some of them very, very rapidly. So we can come back to some of those, those dynamics if you want, but essentially that group of people um, really have one thing on their minds now, and that is how do you do reduce risk, how do you pay the pensions, and, and even more so, how do you think about the long-term security of the members' benefits and and, and that sort of leads one naturally to think about whether it should be passed to an insurance company at some point in the future. So they tend to be in that sort of mindset of a, an end game, a runoff, 
Uh, and that, that, that has a huge implication for investment strategy. And yes, but that's important, isn't it? Because that requires a more regular <coughs> guaranteed income, so fixed income yes. of various forms, rather than the volatility and uncertainty inherent in any equity strategy. I, I, indeed. I mean, particularly if you are um, your typical defined benefit pension fund that is closed, probably having to pay 6 or 7% of its assets out each year to, to members, and that number just goes up every year. So at some point you're paying 10 15% of your assets out. What you don't want to be is a, a sort of a forced seller of a volatile asset. You, you need to, to know you're going to generate the pensions at the right point in time. I think there's also one other myth about DB pension schemes. I say it often in the press, saying that they're you know, the ultimate long-term investors. Mm. And people forget that actually the implied life for most Defined benefit pension schemes in Britain is potentially less than a decade. They'd all like to do the buyout. Indeed. They'd all like to de-risk, yes. as you said. That's really important because even if you, you know, even if you shut your pension fund fifteen years ago, you'll still have members in their fifties who probably have thirty, forty years left to go. So in theory, you've still got a, a forty-year time horizon. But as you say, in practice, most trustees don't expect to be running the pension fund until the last person dies. What they expect to do is at some point hand that pension fund over to an insurance company. And that timing is typically, I would say, between three and ten years. Most pension funds are probably planning to make that transition within the next decade. But that's then the effective time horizon. Now, I've been in the industry even longer than you, Karen, mm. and I've heard – over, gosh, decades um, about small company deficit, you know, we're not funding enough infrastructure spending, we're not getting enough money into venture capital startups, a lot of you know, government commentary on the role of the pensions and savings industry, mm. lots of worthy reports, but then it seems to be the action doesn't follow up, but the government at the moment has started to fly some, yeah. it's put some ideas out there. Can you give us a summary of some of the concepts? Yes. So, so the government is asking itself the question, are pension funds uh, performing well for their members, the sponsors, and the economy? So they're thinking about it through those three lenses, as uh, I think it's as very, very appropriate for a government to do. Um, I think it's, you know, I would say that that, that 1.4 trillion pounds, let's just, just stay focused on them for a minute. Uh, it's probably pretty clear they're doing quite well with their members' interests because the members um, will, first of all, you know, receive a pension from the fu- from the pension fund. If, if something terrible goes wrong, they are protected by the PPF as well. PPF. Uh, sorry, the PPF is the Pensions Protection Fund. So this is the sort of industry-wide insurance um, insurance vehicle that was set up a couple of decades ago to provide insurance for pension funds where the sponsor had failed. So a company goes bust, what happens to the pension fund? It goes into the PPF who, who then do meet most of, not all, but most of the members' benefits. So, so the members have got that level of insurance behind them. But arguably, sponsors have had the short end of the stick. I mean, they've had to shovel in huge, huge volumes of money to make up deficits. And as the government is pointing out, you know, the economy is not benefiting. You know, UK pension funds don't invest very much money in the British economy. And they're looking around the rest of the world at places like Australia and the Netherlands, the Nordics, um, Canada. And they see large pension funds who, who indeed invest in their local economies. And they're saying, why is that not, not happening here? And so they, they've, in, they've, they've um, sort of released a set of calls for evidence 
um, the the Chancellor spoke in Mansion House a, a few months ago, where he asked, he raised the challenge to pension funds to commit to investing in the British economy, and, and several large defined contribution pension funds did did sign up to that. Um, and so the government does seem quite committed to the idea of we need to make this pool of capital work better for Britain. And and they are, I think, quite open-minded to exploring whether some of the rules need to change. Are there sort of misincentives? Could there be new incentives? Is there a case for a new super fund that could be established that, that might must sort of take this on as a project? If so, what would that super fund look like? Could it sort of – is part of the problem the fact that we have a very – um, a very sort of diversified industry with lots and lots of very small pension funds. Now, that £1.4 trillion, pounds, there, there are a number of very large pension funds who do make the headlines. There are lots and lots and lots of pension funds with less than £10 million. Pounds. Um, and and how, you know, what, what can they do as such tiny players? So if they could be pasted together and, and sort of create a super fund, could they behave in, in a different way? Might they invest more more in Britain? So these are the thoughts that the government is, is, is asking. They do seem very, very committed to exploring all the possibilities. Um, and, and in fact, the industry has responded uh, as we, we were one of the many respondents and they're thinking about it. We haven't heard much back yet, but I'm sure there will, there will be a, a sort of a government response. And you mentioned some of the countries that have been very successful at this. You know, Joe Hambro is owned by, you know, an Australian firm. So super funds, you know, superannuation funds in that case. But they're, you know, very big influence on the Australian economy, Canada. But their constructs are very different. And that's the problem, isn't it? I I think so. So, you know, if we focus once again on the DB. For for genera- for decades, um, I mean, and, and, and you know, and this was the result of legislation from both sides of the political spectrum. The emphasis was on protecting the members' benefits. So we had we have very strict rules in the UK about funding, about liability, about trustee responsibilities. For example, it is the trustees who run the pension fund. Their responsibility is to pay the members' pension. They are not responsible for making the world a better place or for making Britain a better place. It's simply not their job. Uh, Their job is to pay the pensions and and no more. Once you have enough money to pay the pensions, that's what you should do and and de-risk. So it's it's natural that when there's enough money in the pot to sort of guarantee those members' benefits – that, that the natural thing you would do as a trustee is to is to, is to stop taking risk. There's no there's no benefit to you as a trustee from taking risk beyond the the least the least necessary. Now that's different in other countries, and it's also different in a defined contribution pension, where at the end of the day, the member needs those returns because they need to to get as big a pot as possible so that they can actually afford to retire. And a lot of the examples you're talking about in, in, in Australia, for example, are actually DC pensions. So so it's, 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 there's no logic to de-risk there because you've got people, you know, coming through the ranks who need to save for their futures. And with mandatory contribution rates, yeah. which you know, does change the dynamic because they're all effectively open schemes with yes. positive cash yes. flow, which changes that whole dynamic about long-term investing. Indeed. If you have a, a vision that there's more money coming in, then you can genuinely invest in infrastructure assets for potentially 30 years. Yeah. And, yeah. and so looking at what the options are to you know, for the 
the defined benefit and the defined contribution market to play a role in the uh, in the broader UK economy. I know you, you at Cardano have been mm. thinking about that. You know, what do you think are the most realistic um, options? I, I think DC is very interesting. So you, you, you mentioned a minute ago, Andrew, that DC is still growing. It's open. It's where it's where our younger workers are saving. Uh, so there are very strong flows of money coming in. Um, <clears throat> And and uh, and there is quite a bit of consolidation in the DC market. Um, there are many DC master trusts that that are quite substantial in size, but there's still quite a lot of work to be done. And I would say there's three areas, and I know the government is focused on all three of them. One is more consolidation um, in in the in the UK DC place. Whilst there are large master trusts, there are also lots and lots of tiny DC pensions, and and the regulators is is trying to raise standards, up the game. And, and gently encourage forms of consolidation. Many of the master trusts, though, are providing commercial consolidation options. And so um, it is possible if you're a small DC provider, you can go to a larger master trust and probably benefit from economies of scale. You can benefit probably from more if you like, functionality, and you can benefit from a more sophisticated investment strategy with better governance. So I think that's part of the dynamics. And countries like Australia have been doing this for a long time. have done a very good job of a small number of large players rather than a large number of small players. I think that's one of the, the things that needs to be focused on in the UK. The, the other two areas are, I mean, we do seem to have an obsession in the UK with daily liquidity in DC pensions. It's not a legal requirement. It's not something that, 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 the, that the rules mandate. But almost by choice, uh, most of the, the UK DC market has sort of focused on that. And that, that can be disruptive for some types of investments. I mean, you can't do infrastructure. You can't do property. You can't do private equity. You can't do to impact certain impact strategies. There's a lot of things that, that are then off the table. And, and so I think this daily liquidity needs to be looked at, needs to be thought about. And particularly if you're a DC pension fund and you're collecting you know, lots of money coming in, I mean, you know, these are not pension funds where, where, where members switch every single day. Uh, they're probably making infrequent decisions. There, there surely needs to be a better solution for that. And once again, countries like Australia deal with that very well. Uh, and then finally, I mean, we've also had, I think, um, charge caps in the UK, which is a very, you know, costs and charges are very important. There's been a lot of good work done showing how they, they sort of eat out, eat away at the pension over the long time. But but too much focus on, on, on the price I think also creates barriers to the nature of the of the investments that, that that can then be put into the portfolio, and and so you find that UK pensions are sort of UK DC pensions are overwhelmingly passive, very cheap strategies, and and a little bit more of a balanced debate about value for money, about the returns that you can get, the sort of the impact that you might be able to make with your investments, played off against the, the costs of the investment. I think that's, those are interesting areas to pr- promote. Those, so those three themes, the sort of the consolidation, daily liquidity, the costs, they're all on the agenda. They're all being debated. And I think progress in those three areas will, will really help. But, but the DC world, the, the UK DC assets can definitely be seen as a, as a vehicle for more investment in the British economy. And it's just, you know, changing the structure would be the easiest way in many ways because there is definitely a disincentive from investing in infrastructure, which is inherently illiquid. Uh, It just doesn't fit with a daily traded system. And, you know, it seems as almost if the DC 
plans are being run on the same basis as your savings account, with, yes. you know, into unit trusts. So, okay. you know, so we could be a bit more imaginative. Uh, on pensions in general and pension contributions, I think there's one big problem, though, mm. isn't it? We're not saving <laughs> enough. No. I think you mentioned to me a while back that the amount that, on average, that we save is going to lead to a huge yeah, retirement yeah, uh, problem for younger generations. Indeed, um, you know the the auto enrolment rules in the UK, which which are really really good news, are still set at quite a low level. And so, if you're putting in even with an employer's contribution, say ten or even even fifteen percent, it's it's just not enough. Um, and there's no, the only way to solve that equation is either people end up working a lot longer than they expect, you know, well into their seventies and possibly even their eighties. Or, uh, you know, the, the other part is how long are we going to, you know, it's, it's all about how long you live after you retire, isn't it? And so you can you can either address that by just working longer or by saving more. Um, the returns that people earn are sort of unknown, but the amount of money that you save can at least be planned for. Um, so I think a lot more needs to be done on that. I mean, one of the, the, the consequences of moving from the DB system to the DC system, it's, it wasn't just about who bears the risk. Um, it was also about the amount of money going going in. I mean, your typical DB pension involved, you know, 30% of the salary being paid in to the pension fund. And if you're going to halve that, I mean, there's nothing you can do on the investment side that's going to make up that difference. If you're putting in half the money you used to, you're going to get half, half, half out at the end. Yeah, a point I make regularly to my to my children who are mm. in that sort of uh, starting their their pension savings journey. But it, it is really important that we you just have to. It's very hard when you're in your twenties, thirties, yeah. and maybe you have the maximum pressure on your expenditure to think yeah. of your pension contributions, which have now been pushed onto you, as well as your import, employer, to you know, how important it's going yeah. to be. No, and I think in that sense, the sort of making it automatic, making it something that you have to choose to opt out of is is, is the right the right thing to do. I mean, the evidence from auto enrolment has been phenomenal. There was a lot of concern that you know everyone would opt out. The opt out rates are very very low. So once once you're sort of forced to take up the pension, and you have the choice to withdraw, very few people choose to withdraw. And I think that sort of just need that nudging in and the nudging up is something which is which has been shown to be very effective. I'd like to pick up on mm. something you mentioned earlier and said we, we might come back to, and that's the unfunded pensions, yeah. Yeah, the state pension, you know, which is um, not completely unfunded in the sense that we all pay for it one way or another through taxation. We have a guilt issue. And so I just wondered, you know, it was a, it's a really important topic that doesn't really get much coverage, and I just wondered <laughs> if you'd like to expand on this topic. It's something which I, I've, I've been thinking more and more about, um, So, so it, and I think it's very important. So there are two things. There, there is the state pension, which everyone is entitled to in the UK. Um, I mean, it's connected. It's a complicated system. It depends on how many years national insurance you've paid. Uh, but everyone is basically is entitled to the basic state pension. So that is unfunded, meaning it's, it's what's called a pay-as-you-go. Tax revenue this year, um, is, it goes to pay current pensioners. And so in, in an economy that is growing, in a, where, where the population is growing – that becomes uh, – that's okay. I mean, quite a few countries do it this way. 
Um, of course, if your population is aging and you're not growing the same rate and perhaps the economy, real growth is not as strong as it was, it's a real problem because how do the future generations afford to pay the current generation when they eventually retire? The government is adamant that the state pension is technically voluntary. What they mean by that is it's not a hard obligation. So they do not produce any accounts that try to quantify the size of the liability. Technically, the government will argue that if they didn't, if they didn't have enough money, they would simply stop paying the state pension. Now, of course, I mean, I'm not a political expert. I can't imagine what the political ramifications of that might be. Um, but in addition to the state pension, I mean, I, so what's the, what's the value of that? What, if you were to sort of try to shore up enough money today, I'm guessing it's at least 10 trillion pounds. It's huge. Um, there's also the public sector. So most public sector employees, teachers, doctors, police, military, um, uh, have pensions, quite generous pensions. They have defined benefit pensions in the large, and they're also unfunded. Now, the government does produce accounts and place a value, and the last accounts they produce, which are just over a year old, place the value of, I think, £2.5 trillion pounds on that liability. Um, I mean, as an actuary, I would say that's probably undervaluing it quite a lot. I, I, I think the value is, is easily more than 3 or £4 trillion. But they do place a value that does actually sit in something called the whole of economy accounts, and that's produced every year. Now, um, the reason why this is interesting is because if you look at other countries – um, most of those other countries we were discussing, Canada, Australia, um, the Netherlands, the Nordics, do actually fund those public sectors, the teachers, the nurses, um, the doctors. There are pension funds with assets, and those assets are super funds. They're huge, hundreds of billions of pounds. They run incredibly professionally. They, are, they adopt sophisticated investment strategies. They are open because there's a population that's um, stable and sometimes growing. Um, they, 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 they invest in equities. They invest in private equity. They invest in infrastructure. They invest a lot in the local economy. Um, and they're actually, um, I think, exactly the examples the UK government has pointed to to say, why don't we have more of this in Britain? Well, if we had funded public sector pensions, we could. We could have a teacher's super fund. We could have a nurse's super fund. And we could copy what our colleagues across the channel and, and across the Atlantic are doing. And, and that could be a wonderful vehicle for investing in the, in the British economy. Some of those pension funds, by the way, invest 25 30 percent of their assets in infrastructure, real estate, private equity and so on. So, so I think that's something which, which, which should be seriously considered. And, and actually, um, of course, the, the main objection is, is, well, where do you get the money from? You know, where do you get the, the 500 billion pounds to fund the teachers? Well, you don't have to do it in one go. You, you wouldn't need it all on day one. And, and if you are issuing, say, gilts and you're investing in assets that earn more than gilts, then actually you reduce the cost of the pension because you're going to have, you know, liability to pay a gilt, a gilt uh, rate of return to your funders. And you'll invest in private equity and equities that will produce a higher return. So actually, actually, you would reduce the cost of those pensions. And it, I think it's something which should be seriously considered. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like the uh, the problem is is the, this obsession with the subcontraction of the uh, subcontracting of the the governance of government to mm. the private sector. The private sector is always seen as the best solution. Yeah. But those examples, like in the Netherlands. 
you know, they, they do some great things. You yeah. know, they're big investors in impact investing. Yeah. You know, one of my previous guests is Dr. Judith Rodan, who's the creator of impact investing, and about you know that use of capital to scale up tackling underserved social and environmental needs. But it does need the right structures to be put it, in it place. Does. You can't just automatically assume the private sector will respond because the incentives aren't necessarily there for them to respond in that manner. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, we've we've got a lot of, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but there's a lot of law in the UK about trustees' responsibilities. And you, you're a trustee, Andrew, you, you know about this. It, it's quite hard to, on the one hand, say to a trustee, it's your responsibility to make sure this is done properly. Oh, and by the way, you must do this, this and this. Um, so it's very hard to tell a trustee thou shalt invest in the British economy, thou shalt invest in this project or that project, and at the same time say it's your responsibility to do the best that you can. If you were setting up a, a UK a public sector super fund for, for, for the teachers or the nurses, you could write into that charter 25% must be invested in the British economy. You, you could create that afresh. It could be part of its mandate. You could populate the decision makers and ensure that some of them have you know, local expertise. And, and you, could, you could create the links between parts of the economy that need the finance and those, those sort of structures. And you could actually set it up in a way that it is, you know, well accepted that this is, you know, these are for public employees and there should be a public aspect to the way that they invest. I think that would work work very well and not and, and, and could be done in a way that doesn't conflict with trustee responsibilities. And I think as well there's a mindset set shift that we need. Mm. You know, we, we often talk about these as costs to the economy. Yeah. In fact, I think you used the word cost. And especially governments, when they think about public sector pension funds or the state pension, it's a cost, it's, an, it's a burden, it's often phrased as. But it actually, like a lot of things in you know, the conversations I have uh, with other guests on sustainable matters, by reframing it not as a cost but as yeah. an investment – which I guess is what they were trying to do with some of the, the, the discussions that they've initiated. It really transforms the problem. And mm-hmm. then it, mm-hmm. you know, so it's actually understanding how you look at the problem and find the right incentives that leads to the solutions rather than thinking the solution's ready made and in the defined ben, uh, benefit pension scheme system, which it doesn't seem to be. Yeah. I think that's a very valuable insight, Andrew. And in fact, um, and I know this is sort of a, somewhat of a dream, but the sort of the, the focus on the next election and the political cycle is not ideal for trying to plan for the next 50 years of the economy. And when you think about the types of decisions that should be made about funding of public sector, these are 50-year decisions, not five-year decisions. And and I think there's no way to avoid this, but there's a, there's a disconnect between that sort of long-term planning mentality you're talking about and our political cycle. I, I mean, I do know that Sweden for many years has had a cross-party um, kind of pensions working group and they tried to, to get pensions issues, sort of, you know, the, the economic-wide pension issues to be dealt with by a cross-party group just for that very reason, that it sort of goes a bit beyond the, 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 the government of the day. Um, but that mindset that you're referring to is, is I think, sadly missing um, and, and, and difficult to get on the agenda. Yes, well, if you, when you think about sustainable growth, you know, it is imperative that we have a stable 
regime, a stable you know, yeah. funding regime, a stable strategy. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about offshore wind yeah. and the changes in rules around green energy Indeed. that you might have an aspiration to be net zero, but then you set the incentives incorrectly and you have the opposite outcome. Yeah. It's the same with pensions and pensions. Yeah. If you think think about it, one of the biggest financial responsibilities that we have, you know, yeah. both at you know, the government level, but also individually, you know, our, our retirements now hopefully are long, longer and happier and healthier than they have been in the past. Yeah. But they need to be funded. And that responsibility yeah. is so important to get yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely. Karen, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you again. You know, one small factoid: I started off in the in the actuarial profession. It took me one year to realise it wasn't for me. So I always, <laughs> always have huge respect for anybody who passed their actuarial studies, but uh, particularly for you and our, our conversation. So thank you for being here today. But one last question before we wrap up, and look, I ask this of all our guests, and ideally in less than two minutes. Um, a bull and bear, sorry for the stock yeah. market mm-hmm. uh, jargon. But what's one thing that you're optimistic about and one thing that you're pessimistic about? Well, it's, it's, it's probably easy for me to start with the pessimistic side. Um, I, I, I do feel that the, the – we sort of feels like we've got to an end of a super cycle in many, many respects. I'm not, not I mean, you know, there's lots of people who've spoken more eloquently than I possibly could about this. But the confluence of um, monetary policy changes, the size of public, of debt around the world, the changing geopolitical environment, the sort of how those, those three big super cycle factors come together and what that means for the next few decades of returns that, that does worry me a lot and I you, you mentioned about getting young people to save I, I do worry that that having now lived through several generations where uh, we have a, had a better quality of living than our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. I do worry that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will, will just not – will be going in the other direction. So that, that's the, the, the big-picture pessimism. Um, <clears throat> the optimism is just human ingenuity and the fact that we um, you, you know, we seem to be invent our way out of all sorts of problems. I mean I, I'd barely heard of – I mean I had heard of AI a year ago but I certainly hadn't seen what it could do and the, it, it, it's, a, it's another – Huge, huge leg up in terms of what 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 we humans can can figure out. Um, I feel depressed when I think about net zero, and I, at the same time, optimistic that I'm sure the the number of inventions that are going to come out of the next few few years are going to make a meaningful impact. And probably in 20 years' time, we'll be hopefully sitting here thinking, "What was all the fuss about? We, we've managed to invent all these new things that have solved our problems." So that's that's my optimism. I would say investing is the collision between human nature and human ingenuity, which can create this sort of dynamic tension. But that's a topic for perhaps another day. Karen, thank you very much for your time. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Organising the Future is available on Spotify, Amazon and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode. If you would like to learn more about investment opportunities at Joe Hambro Capital Management or at Regnan, please do contact your representative. Details about us, about our funds and our approach to investment are on our website. Just search for Joe Hambro in your favourite browser.